Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. So this practice that we do together, that we're doing together all day, all night, all week, forever, um, it's nice to remember that this practice is a matter of life and death. Um, Because when you meditate on death, it puts you into life. And then you start to see that in every moment of experience, that is actually life and death happening. Something is born, rises, unfolds, and then passes away. Why especially us? Oh, I just threw that in there. I made it up. Uh, It's not supposed to be there. (laughs) I've been thinking a lot about our conversation last night when we were talking about Arjuna in chapter 10 and 11 where he turns to Krishna and says you've taught me all of this different yoga all of these techniques You've taught me jnana yoga and karma yoga. You've taught me sankhya yoga. And still I have no idea what to do. And then Krishna uh, says, well, you know, what do you need? And Arjuna says, show me who you are. Show me your form. And that's what he does. Krishna reveals his form at first to be everything that is the most beautiful and spectacular. Um, Kind of like looking up at the moon and just seeing brightness and beauty, um, and forgetting that the moon has another side that you can't see. And there's always another side of things that you can't see. Like, I'm sitting up here on a cushion, and I can't see the cushion. Uh, so no matter where you're standing, there's always a shadow. In everything that we do, there's always a shadow that you can't see. And so what Krishna is doing, he's revealing what's beautiful, And then he's revealing what is dark and what we don't want to look at. And we all have this in our experience. There's um, so many preferences built into not only the mind, but the sense organs themselves, which is what we call the body. That the, the body is made up of sense organs that are highly conditioned. And so in that conditioning, 
we're never really meeting life fully because we always seem to be meeting life in terms of the conditioning of the mind and the body so that we're always mediating our experience with preference. And so I want to have um, a, a heart, an awareness that's open to you, to Heather. But when I see Heather, I have to filter Heather through my psychology and through my physiology, which is highly conditioned. And Stephanie is going to filter Heather through her unique condition, her, her karmic patterns. And what we're trying to do in yoga practice is to notice these patterns of conditioning. So not just noticing what we want to notice, but also noticing the shadow of things. And perception always hides a shadow. And in a way, that's what chapter 10 and 11 in the Bhagavad Gita are all about, is um, seeing both the light and the dark, which usually we don't want to see both the light and the dark. So I thought I would read a poem that I came across a couple of days ago that was sent to me. And um, it's by somebody named Billy Collins. And the title of the poem, it's a great title, um, Another Reason I Don't Keep a Gun in the House. The neighbor's dog will not stop barking. He is barking the same high rhythmic bark that he barks every time they leave the house. They must switch him on on their way out. The neighbor's dog will not stop barking. I close all the windows in the house and put on a Beethoven symphony full blast, but I can still hear him muffled under the music, barking, barking, barking. And now I can see him sitting in the orchestra his head raised confidently as if Beethoven had included a part for a barking dog. When the record finally ends, he's still barking, sitting there in the oboe section barking, his eyes fixed on the conductor who is entreating him with his baton, while the other musicians listen in respectful silence to the famous barking dog solo, that endless coda that first established Beethoven as an innovative genius. Do you follow that? So, this is a great example of preference. The mind doesn't want the barking dog, but what's there is the barking dog. I remember going on a meditation retreat where um, the center that I went to in Massachusetts was uh, being um, renovated. So I got there for the first session and sat down all excited to finally be on a retreat. And as soon as the bell rang, ding, the tractor started, chainsaws started, and it was like this for a week. <laughs> um, and first, the mind creates preferences, where it's like, that's bad, that, that shouldn't be included. And we do this with other people, right? I like this part of you, but that part of you I can't accept. Or we do this with ourselves, that whenever you create a persona, you have to leave something out. So if I want to create a certain version of Michael to present to the world, in the creation of that version, there are some parts of me I have to leave out. And so whenever we construct self, there is always aspects of self when we're identifying with self 
that we have to leave out. And that's what we call the shadow. And the problem is, you leave stuff out, and the stuff that you leave out, you have to put in, like, a bag, and then you have to carry the bag around. It's kind of exhausting. And years later, not only are you carrying this heavy bag around, but the stuff we tend to put into the bag is usually the best stuff. And as it sits in the bag, it starts composting. It starts to smell. And so... What we're always doing in practicing is not leaving anything out. We're rolling everything we have into our yoga practice constantly. So that hopefully what we explored last night together in terms of not fragmenting the practice. Do you remember we were talking about the koshas? We were talking about how you can't work on the physical body without working on the emotional body, without working on the body of pure bliss. That... Every aspect of the body is inherently united. And likewise, this practice needs to include everything. It should leave no stone unturned. Otherwise, you create in the practice a shadow. And so, what we're always trying to do in our practice is find the complementary opposite to what we're practicing. So when you practice a backbend, you want to practice a forward bend right after to complement the action of the backbend. Um, likewise, when you practice asana, the rest of your life is the complement to your asana practice. So you roll back in over and over again all of the different ingredients of your life so that you're not leaving anything out. Because to leave something out creates an imbalanced yoga pose, creates an imbalanced yoga practice. And so that's one of the reasons why we have this kind of loose idea of the eight limbs. Because it's reminding us that practice includes many parts. And the first limb is the limb of relationship, where we're always including in our practice the quality of our relationships by meditating on the effects of our actions. Because when our actions are informed by clinging, by attachment or aversion, or by sticking to stories about ourselves, these are called the kleshas, then... Um, we set up in the mind and body the root source for the next moment's experience of discontent. Because you're reinforcing in the mind and body a habitual way of acting that's self-referential all the time. And what's beautiful about this Billy Collins poem is this idea that at first we experience the barking dog as something we want to get rid of, preference, you know. I don't like that yoga pose. Let's get rid of it in the sequence. Has anybody ever done this before? You practice at home and you leave poses out? Am I the only person who does this? Okay. <laughs> and, uh, but what we're trying to do is not put anything outside the heart to accept whatever is there in that experience. The good and the bad, the light and the dark, the highs and the lows. And it's hard. It's, it's hard to accept other people. But you never know. You may realize that the barking dog actually fits really nicely in the Beethoven symphony. And there's a little twist at the end of the poem. He says, um, um, the endless coda that first established Beethoven as an innovative genius. Because if you know the history of classical music at the time of Beethoven, Beethoven, like many great artists, borrows outside of the tradition and then brings that back into the tradition. 
you know, great artists are always wonderful when they can uh, take something from an unexpected place and bring something into their medium that they're working with. Because then there's something fresh. So, I mean, think about how hard it is to paint a painting. You know, this, uh, how many times before you, standing in front of an easel, has somebody faced a blank canvas? How many more paintings could you paint? And we're still painting them. It's like poetry. How many times in the English language have you used the word blue? You know? It's been on the lips of everybody. But your job as a poet is to use blue again and to set it up in a new context so that the English language, like when you read good poetry, it feels like the language is being reinvented again. How many times have you practiced downward dog? But what happens is as downward dog matures, it includes more and more and more. Not mechanically, but in terms of awareness. You can allow whatever is there to be there. So the downward dog then becomes a kind of laboratory where you learn how to cultivate patience and acceptance. Especially if you don't have kids and you can't practice patience in your life. Hanging around with little kids. Even if you don't have kids, find some little kids. (laughs) It's good practice. It's not everybody's path to have kids, but it should be on your path to include kids in your life somehow. And elderly people. Um, let's look at the Yoga Sutra again. Um, chapter 2. Line 14. <clears throat> life will be marked by delight, anguish, delight or anguish, in proportion to those good or bad actions that created its store of latent impressions. This life will be marked by delight or anguish in proportion to those good or bad actions that created its store of latent impressions. We're going to see the beginning of a theme now in this text, for those of you who've been going forward in the text, that when Patanjali says this life, or hints at next life, he, he doesn't go on to describe what a past life or a future life is. And I think this is an easy place where a lot of people who believe in reincarnation or who want to have a kind of philosophy about future lives superimpose that onto the text. But strictly psychologically speaking, when we talk about life and death, we're talking about the life and death of this moment of experience. So when you have an exhale, for example, when you exhale, that moment is over. But we were talking about Kenpo Tsultrum earlier. Um, Kenpo Tsultrum, when somebody asked him, how long should I meditate for? He said, just blink your eyes. When you blink your eyes, that moment is over. 
You can't go back and get the moment before you just blinked your eyes. Try it. Blink your eyes. And now go back and try and get what just happened. Is anybody trying? You can't do it. You can't ever recreate that experience again. So when you bump into the friend you haven't seen in a long time who you had a falling out with, when you meet them and you superimpose on that experience the past, you're not actually meeting what's there in that present experience. In other words, life and death is what's happening now in the moment. In this moment, when you blink, that is a practice of life and death right there. Let's look at the next sentence, line 15. Let's chant it. Vivekanaha Vivekanaha Sarvam Vivekanaha Sarvam Vivekanaha Sarvam Vivekanaha Eva Sarvam Vivekanaha Eva Sarvam Vivekanaha Dukham Eva Sarvam Vivekanaha Dukham Eva Sarvam Vivekanaha Virodacha 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 Dukham Virodacha Dukham Guna Vritti Guna Vritti Virodacha Guna Vritti Virodacha Dukham Eva Dukham Eva Sarvam Vivekanaha Sarvam Vivekanaha Eva Sarvam Vivekanaha Eva Sarvam Vivekanaha Guna Vritti Guna Vritti Virodacha Dukham Eva Sarvam Vivekanaha Dukham Eva Sarvam Vivekanaha Samskara Samskara Dukhayar Dukhayar Samskara Dukhayar Samskara Dukhayar Guna Vritti Virodacha Guna Vritti Virodacha Dukham Eva Sarvam Vivekanaha Parinama Tapa Samskara Parinama Tapa Samskara Dukhair Guna Vritti Virodacha Dukhair Guna Vritti Virodacha Dukham Eva Sarvam Vivekanaha So more than the word Dukkha, discontent, we find in the Yoga Sutra this word Padinama, transformation, the change of form. The wise see suffering in all experience, whether from the anguish of impermanence or from latent impressions laden with suffering or from incessant conflict 
as the fundamental qualities of nature vie for ascendancy. This sentence is pregnant. Um, The wise see suffering in all experience. The wise see suffering in all experience. That's a hard one for most people. It's hard to recognize dukkha. It's hard to recognize suffering, discontent. Um, It's so easy to mask our discontent. Um, If you were content, Santosha, content, what would your shopping habits look like? Any thoughts? So, yesterday we were talking about seeking fame, seeking wealth, and desire for romantic relationship. And those are all examples of where, out of our discontent, we try and cover up our suffering, cover up dukkha. Um, So what Patanjali is saying here is that the wise see dukkha. They see suffering in all experience. But remember, the definition of suffering is that suffering is self-created. That you are creating your own suffering. Suffering is not precipitated by something external to you. That you are creating your own suffering. One of the ways I like to translate suffering is suffering is reality times resistance. That there is what's arising in reality, and when you multiply that by aversion or attachment, you get suffering. Who's resisting reality? It's you. So sometimes we say, other people are making me suffer. The government is making me suffer. But other people are not making you suffer. This is a hard one to swallow. That suffering is self-generated dukkha. Selfish suffering. That you are constructing the dukkha. So the wise see how self-generated suffering can be in all of experience. Why? Well, the first thing that he mentions here is impermanence. That when you look into the nature of reality you start to see that everything that you can perceive is impermanent. Everything that you hear is impermanent. Everything that you see is impermanent. Everything that you can smell is impermanent. Everything that you can taste is impermanent. Everything that you think is impermanent, and everything you feel is impermanent. And all of the faculties you use to do all of that, those faculties are also impermanent. There is not much to hang on to. And the way the mind works is that it's always trying to go, ha. That's what that is. Oh, that's who I am. Oh, that. In other words, the mind always wants security. 
It wants to try and create permanence in a world that is dazzling, dazzlingly impermanent. There is not much that you can cling to as mine. Have you ever tried? All of your relationships are impermanent. All of our knowing each other in this room right now is totally impermanent. And the relationships that you hold most dear, that are the relationships that you invest all of your bones and muscles and feelings into, those are all impermanent. And the relationships that we feel are the most permanent, like the feeling of me, that is also impermanent. So the wise start to see that there is suffering in experience when we cling to anything as I, me, or mine. And the paradox is when you really start to get a sense of what impermanence is, especially in the context of relationship, it opens you up to relationship. And it's this funny paradox about non-attachment, is that the more you notice your attachments, the more you free space up in those relationships so that non-attachment actually means engagement because without clinging, you're more present with your experience. Without clinging to others, without turning other people into what you need them to be all the time, you're free to relate to them. And most people think that impermanence is like cutting off, cutting off, uh, being dissociated or being indifferent. That you see impermanence and so you're going to practice non-attachment so you better be indifferent. But it's not. It's the other way around. It's that you start to notice impermanence and because you start to see that if everything is changing, I can't hold on. It's like the parent who can't let go of the kid so that the kid can just be themselves. Or the child who can't let go of the parents to let the parents be themselves. Or in the case of the Billy Collins poem, allowing the sound to be there without distinguishing this dog is interrupting the Beethoven symphony. Maybe the, the dog would say the Beethoven symphony is interrupting the barking. It's a matter of perspective. But the point is we try and include everything. And then Patanjali says, or from latent impressions laden with suffering. So you see this word here, sangskara. Let's say it together. Sangskara. Um, if you take the base of the tongue and you push it up, mm, mm, so that the sound comes from a more guttural place. Mm, mm, sangskara. Sangskara. So if you look at the English transliteration, you see a little dot under the M. Sangskara. 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 
So the sanskaras are these psychophysical grooves in your body. Um, So, for example, when you're born into the world, you're not just born as a clean slate. You're born, whether you believe in past lives or not, you're born with a tremendous amount of conditioning. One person's eyes are blue, one person's blind. One person has five fingers, one person doesn't. One person can um, go from standing into backbending with no prior yoga experience. Somebody else can't touch their toes in their lifetime. Um, One person thinks a different way than another person. We are all born with a tremendous amount of habituated conditioning before you're even running around. And then all of that conditioning meets the world of culture, family and so on, and then it changes even more. And one of the things we know about neurology is that it's much more elastic than anybody ever thought, that our brains are so elastic that in one moment they are producing new patterns, in the next moment new patterns. So in one moment of experience, you can either meet reality with all of your conditioned patterns of habit, or you can meet reality fresh. I don't know. And so one of the things this practice does is it's interrupting the momentum of the samskaras, the momentum of all the psychological and physical conditioning in the mind and body. It's interrupting for one moment your patterns of reactivity so that you can take in somebody else fresh. And then you know that if you can do that in one moment, you can do that in two moments, in three moments, for four moments. It's like people if you if people who smoke cigarettes. If you can quit smoking for a day, you can quit smoking. <laughs> you know, you, you stop. <laughs> right? But that's easier said than done. Why? Because our habits have a lot of momentum. And that momentum wants to keep going and keep pushing through every new move you try and create. And a lot of people notice this in their yoga practice, in any spiritual practice, that um, you, you have this ability to really wake up and to become much more conscious and awake. Let us awaken. But because of momentum, we also have the habit of then shutting all that down again. And a lot of people find this in practice that you go through periods of really waking up, and then you go through periods where all those old patterns come and shut every step back down again. And hopefully there's faith enough and there's practice enough that the momentum of the good habit starts to create um, a new kind of momentum with a different tone. It's kind of like, you know, the Clinton administration um, created many, many environmental protection plans that were all undone by the Bush administration. It's a fascinating thing. They just went and undid everything. And so um, this is how our minds work. We do the same thing. Is that you come here for a weekend 
and we start to wake up a little bit, maybe you get a taste of what it means to deepen your practice, and then by Wednesday, all the old habits are back. And that's why you need to study, that's why you need to practice, that's why you need relationship, especially the relationship that we call Sangha, community. You need community, because our culture is so much about shutting down. We want you to shut down, because we don't want you to be content, because if you were content, you would not shop. And so, if there is some contentment, then you would not be buying things. If you turn on the news, you're not going to hear anything about contentment. You're going to hear about discontent. In fact, I noticed that the news at this time of year reports about shopping. I was hearing on the news the other day statistics on how the average shopper in Christmas is going to spend this much amount of money and there are going to be this many interact purchases at this hour on Wednesday, so on. That's news. You know, where you can get a good deal on the television is news. The brick is having a sale. And that is actually news that's reported on the radio. It's fascinating. So, because of that, we need to create around us a culture of awakening so that we find ourselves surrounded by a culture that is not our culture. Because you have to find a way to be supported in your practice so that you're not always just reacting against a culture that is preaching something so antithetical to practice. Because otherwise what happens is the values of materialism seep into your yoga practice. And then your yoga practice becomes materialistic, where you just need the next pose, the next teacher, the next studio, the next stage of certification. And then your practice starts to become just another ego achievement or self-improvement project that will leave you feeling just as discontented as when you started. You see? Because our practice gets hijacked by the unconscious shadow of culture. So the samskaras are also culture. You can't talk about your habits without talking about culture. Likewise, you can't talk about culture without talking about individual psychology. Because culture is made up by individual psychologies that agree on things. And who wants to just repeat over and over again the habit of culture? We're trying to create a new kind of culture internally and externally. It's like making yogurt. You know, you're trying to work with previous culture to create a new culture. Anybody who bakes bread knows all about this. You want, you want to get culture with good ancestry and then work with it. So things wake up. You bake it. As you bake it, it starts smelling good. Yeah. Or you can just go and buy the cheapest loaf of white bread you can find. You know what that leads to? Constipation. <laughs> so it's like yoga is for people who've been constipated by culture. When you find culture 
constipating, then you turn to the practice to go deeper. But suffering that has not yet arisen can be prevented. So let's say this out loud. Hey, um. Isn't that a great word? Hey, um. Oh, yeah, hi. Hey, um. Dukam. Anagattam. Suffering that has not yet arisen can be prevented. How? Line 17. The preventable cause of all this dukkha is the apparent indivisibility of pure awareness and what it regards. In other words, standing behind all of that fluctuation, all of that Vritti, the, all of those revolutions or modifications of chitta in the mind, is awareness. Is you. Pure awareness. But not the you who you think is you. The you who is not the you who thinks that you are the you you think you are. In other words, when you stop constructing a self, which is the attempt at permanence, then you're free to be yourself. So that the goal of practice is just to be yourself. And when you're completely present, you're just being yourself. It's hard to be yourself. Has anybody here ever been themselves? Or, maybe a better way of saying that is, can you allow other people to be themselves? To be yourself, isn't this an interesting paradox that you're born, you're already here, and you're still trying to be yourself, to be somebody? It's so strange. And when you think about times in your life when you're very, very present, there are usually times where you are not trying to be somebody. There are just times when you are actually there for experience. Just experience, without subject and object. And when you don't have to keep trying to be someone, you automatically create an atmosphere where others don't have to be somebody for you. Because usually we're trying to get other people to be more like how we want them to be, to satisfy our own self-image, as opposed to just allowing other people to be themselves. How to be yourself. Not the self you think is yourself, but actually to be yourself. Unselfconsciously awkward. One of the things I like about traveling is you go somewhere sometimes, especially traveling in areas where there's not a lot of people. It's 
one of the things I love about being on long long trips. So you get out of yourself. Especially, has anybody here ever been on, has anybody here spent time in the woods? Spend time in the woods and, like, after a week or two, you can take in things other than your stories all the time. And, um, and then you'll notice that you can, you don't have to, especially in the woods without a mirror, you, there's no self-image being reflected. And then you're just being yourself. But you're not trying to be yourself. I'm really trying to be myself here. I'm going to, Touch the wood and be myself. No, it doesn't work like that. But you forget all of that. The chitavittis stop. And there's just purusha, pure awareness. There's awareness, but there's no self in it. You've all experienced this in your life. Swimming or making music or making love or canoeing or, you know, painting or having a heartfelt conversation. Has anybody here ever had a conversation with a parent where um, there's such openness that there's no child and no parent? There's just two people in a moment of connection. Has anybody had this? A couple people. It's hard because there are certain relationships where we're so glued to the category of the relationship where we can't get into the humanness of the experience. Parents and kids are one of these things. I do this practice, you know, with my own parents. Of I try not to use parent in my vocabulary, or mom or dad, or father or mother. Because as soon as I think dad, I'm putting this human in this very specific category, that has in it so many assumptions about how that person should be. As opposed to trying to get out of that and just have this direct experience of father. Try this over the holidays. Most people say, oh, it's great to see family. It's good to see family after you've eaten the turkey and the dessert and everybody's sitting on the couch, bloated with gas, half asleep. <laughs> and then it's like, great to be with him. <laughs> but most of the time, it's so hard to get out of all the categories and the personas and the expectation to just open up and accept this group of people. So when you go visit your family over the holiday, um, walk in the door and just, you know, Pretend you're walking into a mental ward. (laughs) And just go, look at this cast of characters and just uh, listen, be interested, find out about these strangers. Find out about these strangers as opposed to defending yourself and needing to somehow uh, give them the line they want to hear. It's like, if you ever go to a party, is anybody here ever awkward at parties? It's hard for me to go to parties, believe me. And uh, so, this practice I do sometimes is, I'll go to a party and I'll find the person who's the most awkward and go talk to them. (laughs) And usually it's the safest place. 
because they're not expecting you to be anyway. Sometimes they'll just be sitting there and they have nothing to say. And it's a great relief. Because you can get out of this constant construction of a me that needs to present itself, himself, herself. You see this a lot with mothers. In our culture, mothers are not really uh, um, supported very much as wise people and um, you see or as productive people in capitalist culture. So you see, you know, people who have like mothers of young children are always so awkward when people are asking them what they're up to. Because they oh I, I'm not doing anything. Well when are you going to get back to uh to work? Yeah. And it's always so uncomfortable because being a mother of a baby is not work. Like you're not producing anything. Strangest thing. And then we feel like, oh, we have to do something to be somebody. Because persona in our culture is so tied to career. And there's no place to go if you're not in that machine. There's no room for you. I'm going to read this poem one more time. I got to spend once years ago uh, five days with Robert Bly. Does anybody know who that is? He wasn't doing one of those men's retreats. He was just reading poetry. He's quite a character. He used to always read every poem twice. He would always say, okay, now I'm going to read a second time and listen. And it's true. You'd find yourself, like the first reading of a poem, you'd find yourself like, just making personal associations to it, then you kind of miss the poem a little bit. So the second time, just trying to open up to the meaning of a poem. Another reason why I don't keep a gun in the house. The neighbor's dog will not stop barking. He's barking the same high rhythmic bark that he barks every time they leave the house. They must switch him on on their way out. The neighbor's dog will not stop barking. I close all the windows in the house and put on a Beethoven symphony full blast, but I can still hear him muffled under the music, barking, barking, barking. And now I can see him sitting in the orchestra, his head raised confidently as if Beethoven had included a part for barking dog. When the record finally ends, he's still barking, sitting there in the oboe section, barking, his eyes fixed on the conductor who is entreating him with his baton, while the other musicians listen in respectful silence to the famous barking dog solo, that endless coda that first established Beethoven as an innovative genius. So that's Billy Collins. Another reason I don't keep a gun in the house. So don't keep a gun in your mind. If you keep a gun in your mind, you're always shooting down shadow. You're always closing off possibility. 
you're always closing off the opportunity to open up to reality in the present moment that's greater than your theory about what it is, what it's supposed to be, how it should be, who I am, what I need it to be, and so on. The present moment exists independent of your ideas about it. And we're trying to get under the surface. To be in a yoga pose, breathing with the sensation that's there, without having to be telling a story about it. That teaches us a great skill. The skill of being able to be present with our experience, with patience and acceptance, without having a gun in the house. In other words, without having the weapon of preference, always closing things down. The weapon of judgment, always closing things down. The weapon of expectation. Wanting your kid to live your unlived life. (coughs) Wanting your neighbors to do everything the way you want them to. And that's why you practice in community. Because other people are going to screw up who you think you are. Or they'll say to you, hey, you know, uh, Melissa, your practice is not working. Be nice. Be kind. Or they'll say, hey, I think whatever you're doing is really working. And sometimes we need other people to point that out a little bit. Sometimes someone will say, yeah, I think it's great that you can touch your toes now, but you're not being very nice. And then automatically you're in relationship, which means you're back in the first limb of ethics. You go to your yoga class and someone says, oh yeah, it's really great that you can do those back bends, but you know, your Hummer is using all the gas in the country to get here. Oh, maybe I need to think about it. So no gun in the house means being open. Open to reality in the present moment. <clears throat> So let's put our text to the side. <clears throat>